0: Thank you for downloading this podcast from the Traverse Theatre Edinburgh. We now join the theatre's Associate Director and your host, Hamish Pirrie. Welcome to the Travcast, which is our salon where we get to interview writers about writing about the craft of writing and the effect writing has in their lives. And today I'm very excited to present to you Mark Thomas, a writer, performer and political campaigner who's been on our screens, our stages and on the radio for 27 years. And he's sitting in front of me now and brings Bravo Figaro to the Traverse Theatre. Mark, welcome. Thank you. It's great you've introduced
1: me like we we're on Channel Four in 1985. <laughs> it's fantastic. We should be in a dark room at Seti with only three people watching us. <laughs> I should be sitting next to Ruby Rax and Terry
0: Gilliam, possibly Harold Pinter. I don't know. <laughs> I'm trying to give it a bit of decorum, Mark. You know. <laughs> I've never had decorum, darling. <laughs> um, I should admit to everyone here that. Uh,
1: We know each other previously, Mark, don't we? Yeah, we do. Well, because I hope so, because you directed the show.
0: Indeed. The second one you've done. It is the second one I've done. Writing. Writing a joke. You started it. Was the first thing you ever wrote, was it a joke? Um, The first thing I remember writing of
1: anything that was considered worth, uh, well, there's two things I remember writing. One, I remember writing a poem when I was a kid. And uh, my teacher refusing to accept I wrote the poem and not put it up on the wall, um, which was quite odd. Why? She said,
0: no, it's too good. (laughs) It was all a bit kind of like, hello. It wasn't Uh, your dad that wrote it, was it? Pub? It wasn't going to be your dad that wrote it. No, it wasn't
1: going to be my dad that wrote it. She just thought I'd nicked it from a a poem. And it was just like, I don't know. Have I? I thought I'd done it myself. Um, So that, and then I remember writing a... Bizarrely, I remember writing an essay that won an essay writing competition for the Rotary Club, which was just very funny. Me and my mate, Olivia Lasserie, who lived round the corner from me, she won first prize, no second prize. And we both got books. What book did you get? I got a book on shipping. So <laughs> 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 the prize, a book on shipping, and sitting next to a lot of old drunky middle aged blokes. That <laughs> was part of the rotary club. It wasn't the most salubrious introduction to the to the world of writing. <laughs> I think
0: there's a play there with the, with the shipping forecast, isn't there something we could do? There could be there could be something. <laughs> Quite serious, maybe. Rhythmic. Yeah, so what do you think is the development of what made you want to write? I always think that sto- theatre is about storytelling and about sharing that, and almost the purest form of that, in a way, is, is it stand up. Yeah. Because you're just directly telling those stories yeah. to
1: people in a room. Even a one liner is a story. You know, it's got bigi- beginning and and a beginning, a middle, and the wrong ending. That's how one liners work. And the wrong ending? Yeah. That's why if you gave it the right ending, it'd be what everyone expects, and you just go, huh, where's the joke? The wrong ending just trips everyone up. That's why you have a rule of three. That's why comedically you have the rule of three. You establish something, you s- you stay something with the first one. You establish the rule with the second one, and you break it with the third one. That's why you
0: have the rule of three. That's how it does. So that's what you do. You do the beginning, the middle, and the wrong ending. So then, when you go into write something serious, when you have yeah. a moment that is about something else, especially in your your l- latter work, where it is, would you describe? How would you we sort of describe it? A storytelling. Yeah yeah I mean I started off basically when I started performing I wanted to
1: be Lenny Bruce I hadn't actually seen Lenny Bruce I hadn't actually sort of read a book about Lenny Bruce but I knew that he was quite good and was was challenging and people really liked him and uh, lots of other comics talked about him so I thought that's what I want to be I love people like Dave Allen Dave Allen is a as a comic, was really the biggest influence on me, Um, because actually what he does is he tells stories. He tells these magnificent stories in his TV shows. He used to tell these enormous shaggy dog stories that would go on forever, and they were great. But he was just a master at telling these stories, and I really loved that style of work all the big influences when i was a kid were people like dave allen and were uh, woody allen and step two and son you know these were really good story based comics and comic actors and so those were the things that influenced me most and when i started doing comedy it was you know it was quite confrontational and i liked the idea that you could go and you could challenge people's ideas and you could really sort of um make them look at something from a different perspective and i've always thought that about theater and about comedy especially and the one of the biggest influences on me was seeing bertal Brecht's caucasian chalk circle when i was at school and you know coming out of the show thinking that's amazing being really consciously aware that i'd changed my mind I'd, th- I'd thought one thing and thought another when i left the theater and that kind of always has informed what i do that you can get people to see something from another viewpoint my mate nick kent who used to run the tricycle theater He says much more eloquently that the great thing about theatre is it creates empathy so we can see something from someone else's perspective, um, which is a far more eloquent way of putting it. So stand-up for me was always about trying to do something interesting, trying to make people look at something, trying to make them laugh at something or hear something that they didn't expect to see or laugh at. I always thought and you'll forgive my language, anyone with a delicate disposition, you should just switch off now. I always thought that if there's a whole load of liberals in the room, I'm going to talk about fist-fucking. And if there's a whole load of hairy beer-drinking sort of Herberts in, I'm going to talk about the Mexican debt crisis. It's flying in the face of what was expected. And that was kind of slightly contrarian. And there was an idea that you could talk about anything, though. That if you talked about it, With an appropriateness, you could talk about anything. You could talk about freedom of expression. You could talk about sex. You could talk about love. You could talk about debt. You could talk about disability rights. You could talk about anything you wanted to as long as you did it in an appropriate way. But it was all open. It was
0: all up for grabs. What were your rules about what's appropriate? And there's an appropriate way, the rigor. Is that the intellectual rigor within which you approach it and you investigate it? What is appropriate It's just... I
1: come from that really, really old-school stuff, which is don't attack the people at the bottom of the pile. Go for the people who put them there. And I know that's inherently has a kind of... Inherently, that very sentence has a slight sort of Marxist, leftist kind of sort of sound to it because they've been put there. And that's But that's true. I believe that to be true. And I don't see the point of attacking, you know, people... Or at the bottom of the social pile, then, you know, why would you do that? That's just bullying. And I don't, you know, I'd be Frankie
0: Boyle if I wanted to do that. I don't, it's like playground bullying. I don't like that. And then there's still that idea about when you talk about, you're still talking about whatever you want, but you can talk about it in an appropriate way, the manner in which you talk about it. Yeah. There's the also there. a sense of ownership towards the story. You've got to own it correctly. And by that, I mean
1: there's no point in me talking about what it's like to be a black man. There's just absolutely zero point other than the utter humiliation of myself that would ensue if I tried to do it. If you talk about racism from my perspective about saying, you know, what I feel about being a white person and seeing racism and sometimes finding myself thinking in ways which aren't kind of like no I shouldn't be thinking that then that's interesting but you you own that story do you know that's your story and there there's an ownership to it which I think is really important there's no point in doing something that you don't believe in no point in doing something that isn't
0: you you know you just just shouldn't <laughs> it was, I got carried away there in the in the moment, listeners, I apologise. Um, that was the least enthusiastic, carried away I've ever
1: seen. <laughs> God, I must. I love to see you at carnival time. You're just sitting there going, "Oh, this is fun."
0: Well, like you, I'm, tra- I'm trying to be contrary at all opportunities, Mark. I'm trying to go against. <laughs> that, that's my choice. But that thing about contrary, now that affects your whole life, doesn't it? Because you're out about, about always being different, about always. You have a, a vibe in yourself which is always about. What's the next thing? If there is a room full of people and it suddenly becomes there are five people in the room, then you want to go to the empty room, don't you? Yeah. Well, yeah,
1: absolutely. I was watching... um, You know, it's like I remember going to... Me and my mate set up a... We set up the first sort of new material night in london as comics this was about 25 26 years ago we just said we need to set up a club where we can try new material out and just do different things because if you go and do a club people expect you to do very well and they expect a certain standard and you feel a little bit intimidated about trying big loads of new stuff out and actually it's really exciting doing all the new things and discovering new things and new ways of communicating so we set up a club specifically where you could uh, go and do new material And it's funny we never got paid right we we all the performers did it because they just saw it as a, as a good thing to do. Um, and we saved all the money, and the money that we got, we bought a PA system, and the change that we had over, we took all the comics out on a day trip on a coach to Margate. So We had a works out into Margate with the profits. <laughs> it was great. It was terrific. I spent the day picking up cuddly toys with a crane. Anyway, the thing was that it's always... <laughs> a that
0: moment bringing about change? <laughs>
1: Change. It's about it's about the the club itself. About how the club was there to do new material, to always do new things and new ideas. And then we set up me and my mates set up a thing called the Cutting Edge, which was we were trying. It was at the comedy store. It was sort of the first topical comedy club, and we'd do this night, which was you know the ways of working with each other. Um, we had a thing called gag tag where one person would start talking and then you could tag them out as a comic and you'd carry on talking on the same topic or vaguely related. Um, or we'd have the joke challenge where people would set us topics to write about in the interval and we'd go away and write gags in the interval and then start the show. Um, and whoever, whichever comic won the joke challenge, the person who put forward the suggestion would get free tickets and all, you know that kind of thing. So it's always about writing something interesting and new and trying to do it and put yourself under pressure um so when that started to happen then I got bored with it and just thought why would you write about stuff that was just about in the news people were going oh talk about this and it was like you know Michael Jackson's haircut or something like that it would be the equivalent of talking about Prince Harry playing strip billiards now which I have no interest in whatsoever I hate billiards but the point being was um you want to try and do something new so we did that for a while and we you know, really, really would take it on and try and expand what we were doing. Um, but then you just thought we are just an echo chamber of the media, so we just went off and I started to do other stuff. I got asked to do a show on Channel 4, and we just thought, right, what can we do? And we went back and looked at the ideas of kind of situationists and punk rock and looked at a whole load of pranks, and all this kind of stuff. And we, and the idea that you do something as a show, that you try and trip people up, you try and show them things that they hadn't necessarily seen before... Um, So, one of the things we did was like we, I dressed up as a a teddy bear, a large teddy bear. And we had, um, this was years ago, the Tories were in power (laughs) last time round. And uh, they're about to get voted out by, you know, Labour about to win. And it was very interesting. Tories would do anything to get on telly to raise their profile. So we said, come along, be part of this new, um, it's a youth programme. And so they'd arrive, these Tory MPs, loads of them. Like we had more Tory MPs than we had time to fit them in at the TV studio. I'd sit in a big bear costume and they'd come and sit next to me and I'd start asking them questions. It would all be dummy questions. would go, oh, hello, do you like honey? And they'd go, oh, yes, I like honey very much, especially if it's British honey. Do you like Winnie the Pooh? I love Winnie the Pooh. You're pro-hanging and anti-abortion. What age do you think we should kill them? And these MPs would just look at us, would just like,
0: oh!
1: And so it's this idea that you could show people things which was, they hadn't necessarily seen before. You could look at topics in a way you hadn't seen before, and um, so we did that. And the first series, we kind of thought, oh, that's good. Second series, we thought, well, let's try and beef up the facts a little bit, you know. So we we did things like we um, we we sent some. Seagull droppings. We got a uh, scientific analysis of the uh, radioactive content of seagull droppings on the beach at Sellafield, which revealed isotopes with isotopes which were only found from Sellafield, from the uh, nuclear power station. Uh, so basically, was showing that there was contaminated seagull shit all over the floor, and um, they. Uh, so he did this show about that. Um, which resulted in Sellafield cleaning the place up, cost them a million quid in clean up and all that kind of stuff. And you yeah, know that's good because why would you have? You know, there are questions to be asked if there's radioactive seagull shit landing on the beach. Um, and then we thought, okay, where can we go? Can we make this? You know, can we push this further? So I thought, okay, we we did this thing where we'd. Um, I pretend to be an arms dealer, or I would pretend to be a PR advisor. We'd hire a stall at an arms fair in Greece, like massive, big arms fair. Loads and loads of people go there, and I'd set up as a PR advisor. And we'd say we'd do training exercises in how to improve your human rights image. And people would come in, and they would like we could have made a fortune if we'd done it for real. But we'd get people in, and we'd sort of go. My my mate Chris would sit there with a human rights report and ask questions, and I would uh, give them advice, going, "Okay, that's great." What we want you to do is work on a policy of partial admission. Is there anything you can, you know, obviously rubbish amnesty, but now is there anything you can admit to? And we, we ended up, we were asked to pitch to do media training for the Indonesian army in Jakarta. And uh, we got all these confessions. Well, these, these very credible uh, admissions of the use of torture in Indonesia. And we'd get the guy saying, "Okay, can you explain the why do you need torture?" And this guy would go, "Well, you know, it helps. You know, if you don't have torture, you don't get the education standards." Whoa! (coughs) So he had all this stuff. It was very exciting, and we went, (coughs) pardon me, we went back to London, and we did an interview with the Indonesian military attaché. I remember showing him around a TV studio I said, this is how we work, we're preparing reports to train the Indonesian army and in media training, we want to show you this. And we did a session with him, and I said, okay, we put this big board up and said, okay, we've got to admit and deny, right? And then, you know, what we want, all the issues that are here, all the human rights issues, which ones would you put in which column? If you could admit to two of them, what ones would you admit? And the guy admitted to the use of British equipment in East Timor, which was um, they'd always denied and said no, it doesn't happen. And by the time East Timor was uh, under Indonesian occupation, two, as a third of the population had been killed. And it was a you know, it was a brutal, brutal, bloody, bloody dictatorship. And um, and so that was really interesting to suddenly find yourself in a position where you could develop situations where you could put yourself to find things and expose sort of truths so that were really sort
0: of becoming like a journalist um but at the same time you you're maintaining that idea of <coughs> point of change aren't you yeah very much so and that although would you say you wrote those shows uh what we do is we we develop scenarios in which things happened which is still writing you do that at the beginning of writing any yeah no Perhaps absolutely you out, it's the storyline
1: and you go well, Yeah this is no the you would line. work out the storyline you'd work out a scenario in which you, you people would playing so for example one of the things we did was during the Labour Party conference it was when Jack Straw was home secretary we got home of every, we got hold of every single Labour MP's pager number and we got an advanced copy of Jack Straw's script, right? Which was, you know, because media get given advanced copies. And so we watched him doing his speech live. And when he got to about four, three minutes left of his speech. We got, we had a room with loads and loads of people in, each with a list of Labour MPs' pager numbers, and we phoned up every single pager number and sent out the message that read, Dear colleague, at the end of Jack's speech, please stand and shout for more. And they did it. That You can see people on the telly standing up and go, More! More! and it, And actually you create that, you don't really write anything. You just create a scenario in which people react. Do you know what I mean? So that is, it's coming up with the concept of writing. Um, then the first big change. So that was sort of lots of little changes, I suppose. But the really big change was when I did, I was part of a campaign called the Ilici Dam campaign. And I was a campaign coordinator and founder of the campaign. And it was um, working to stop a dam being built in a Kurdish region in Turkey. Um, It was being funded by British taxpayers as underwriting. It involved seven construction companies, seven countries and Turkey. Um, It would result in 78,000 Kurds being displaced and affected. It would destroy a historical, cultural, significant town uh, from the Kurds. And this is a country where culture is really important as part of identity. I mean, it is in every country, but here it's oppressed. There's a woman MP a Kurdish MP called Leyla Zana, and she was arrested and put in jail. Part of the crime that she committed was wearing the Kurdish colours in the headband when she took her oath in the Turkish parliament. Right, so culture's important. And this was all being done in a recovering war zone where 30,000 people had died. You know, the, the Kurdish workers' um, army had fought. You know, the PKK had fought... Uh, With the 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 Turkish army, it'd been really bloody battle. Um, So none of the Kurds wanted this dam being built. It was going, and we did a campaign, and we worked with a lot of Kurds, and we would go out there and do interviews with people, and just go, "What do you want us to do?" So we put the whole emphasis upon the Kurdish people going. There's no point in us going saying this is what you should do. So we asked them. What they wanted us to do and they said we want you to attack the finance so we came up with these really sort of inventive ways of bringing as many people on the campaign as possible and um, building up the pressure through direct action through political awareness through media work advocacy and we had done it for three years and I really wanted to do a show I just thought I'm gonna do a show about this and so I went and told the story of the campaign and um we toured it, and two-thirds of the way through the tour, the, the deal broke down. And all the companies pulled out of the deal, and the dam still hasn't been built in Ilisu, And the Turkish government are trying to build it. They're trying to get funds from China, and they tried from Switzerland and everything. But we had kind of done our bit and made sure that we'd looked after our end of it. And the sh- writing the show was really interesting because it suddenly became this thing where it wasn't just about... Telling gags, it was about explaining the story of the dam. Why? What was bad about it? What did we do about it? Who did we talk to? Having characters that come up and repeat and appear again in the story, about having a development through the show that allowed me to look at various ideas, but also to tell each stage of the story about we'll make it
0: entertaining at the same time. Yeah, Is that and make or? it.
1: No, I loved it. I really loved it, but I never wrote it down. That was the thing about it that I mean we talk about writing, but i didn 't actually <laughs> write anything down i'd just write headings so i'd just have i 'd go and do the, what i do is I'd go and do the show uh two or three times a week and I did it for ten weeks so i 'd just go to little venues like I did uh, ten weeks at the Soho theater, the studio theater I did uh, uh, six weeks up in um Pegasus Theatre in Oxford, I did some work at South Street down in Reading, and I'd just get up there and tell the story, and I'd just make notes about, kind of like, no, that, that doesn't work that bit, and I told that story in a way that didn't make sense, I need to introduce
0: a character first, and so I'd never actually wrote a script down. I always just it when people ask me how you write, or that you write live, you write in front of... That's what those preview gigs are about, aren't they? You sort of write in... I see you do it when, you, when I see you do those early shows. Yeah. OK, that doesn't... And then afterwards we talk about the show and you, I can see you in your head make the changes. It's like an untangible script that sort of exists, I always imagine, in between... In that gap between you and the audience, there's a little script that exists in between. And it always... I see you editing it as you're going live. Yeah. With this show... This show I did... Excitingly. I did actually... I have written a script... The first one, ladies and gentlemen, it's one of the many things in life I'm proud of. <laughs> oh, I persuaded to Mark Thomas to write something down. I did
1: actually write a script down, which was quite interesting. I have to say, it's changed <laughs> as well. It's not an accurate script, <laughs> things change within it. But I think the interesting thing for me is, is that the story, you know, the story, so you get up and you want to tell the story. And it's about effectively telling the story in a way that introduces the characters and make them real. And it's also about the ownership. You know, we talked about the ownership of the story. Like my mum and my dad, we've done the recordings with them um, and we play the recordings in and out of the show. So they tell the story. It's In part, they have ownership of it. And it's uh, acknowledging their ownership of that story. And it's been very important to... For me it's been very important that, that the, the the story's been real. The process of it working with you. Yeah, you know, I remember sitting when we'd just go down and I'd just tell you stories from my from my childhood really. just sitting and We did this and we did that and we did this and we'd get up and we'd just tell stories and try and work out what bits we needed to explain and how we you know, what bits were effective in, in the story and, and about showing my relationships with my dad. And I think the greatest thing that you did was um, you just sort of clarified that thing that comics do. What comics do is they tell the joke and then show it. So you tell the joke and then act it out. And that's, that's how people, that's how it works. It's kind of like giving people to get the idea. It gives them a chance to get the idea, then see it in action, it's just to make sure you really get it. And what you did was you just went, show people. Don't tell them, show them. And that's a really interesting thing, to it show people emotionally rather than tell them is really exciting. can for you me. let them find that, yeah, take that step, yeah, and also it's been really great fun just going this is a story that has an emotional life that isn't you know screaming horror of Kurds, and this isn't a story that that has an emotional life that is you know the oppression of the police, this is about the complexities. Of people we love this is about the fact that our relationships are flawed and that there are good things and bad things and nice things and horrid things and all those it's a, it's a really complex and rich thing and I love the fact that I've, I've really enjoyed embracing that complexity of human relationship I can't believe I've just fucking said that <laughs>
0: and because you have said that I'm going to say that's the last thing I'm going to let you say and frame you with you being slightly pretentious but (laughs) beautiful nonetheless. Mark Thomas, thank you so much for spending the last 20 minutes and, and letting us in on your process. It's been a real pleasure for us all. Thank you, Mark. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this podcast from the Traverse Theatre, Edinburgh. For more information, please log on to www.traverse.co.uk.